if you really want to make an impact, join the party and like help us figure out how to do this a lot safer, a lot cleaner, and a lot better. Because the reality is that you look at the International Energy Agency, you look at all these agencies, and you look at the demand for oil and gas, it's only going to keep rising. There's debate about the peak oil demand coming up in the next five to 10 years, but that goalpost has been moved every year further and further and further. So if you really want to make an impact, get into oil and gas and make an impact because the reality is it's not going anywhere. You know what I mean? Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast episode. Here with me is Puneeth, my co-host. And today we talked with our guest, Justin Gauthier. And actually, I saw Puneeth had already talked to him about two months ago without telling me. So yeah, you want to tell us about that? <laughs> I don't know if I didn't tell you, but I was trying to hide it from you. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it was pretty cool. One of my mentors uh, set up this introduction between Justin and I. We had a great conversation and he ended up inviting me onto his podcast called Wicked Energy. Um, he's in the oil and gas space. And so in our episode a couple of months ago, you can find it on Spotify or Apple. But yeah, we basically didn't really dive too much into the oil and gas space, but really just kind of discussed the versatility of the field of material science and engineering. I just brought more of my perspective and what I've been able to share with this podcast, as well as, you know, the power of networking, career development, etc. So just a really cool conversation we had there. And then, you know, now we're finally bringing Justin onto our show to kind of address the general perception and maybe there's a stigma around the oil and gas industry and he's he's in it right so we wanted to share his perspective and just invite that discussion more and more so it was very interesting kind of hearing his thoughts on how do people feel about the oil and gas space the economics of it all and maybe a mindset shift or a new perspective to take on in particular He was talking about how now like executives in for these oil and gas companies, they are trying to, you know, while still meeting the demand that we have around petroleum based products, try to lower the emissions and make make things more efficient. And he wanted to just invite that discussion of how do we potentially as MSCs, you know, address that if we were to enter the oil and gas industry. So that was probably my favorite aspect of the discussion. But I wanted to get your thoughts, too. Yeah, I, I think Justin himself is also very interesting. He started uh, right out of high school as a technician on a field and then has worked his way up considerably, also going back for multiple degrees. So hearing about his story was very intriguing, especially because both his parents, I believe he said at least his father dropped out of high school, I believe. So it was very interesting to hear his journey and going back to school and working his way up with a singular goal. So I thought that was very fascinating to hear about him. And I think that it's a very interesting argument because it is a tight walk type rope where we need energy to live our lives as we currently know it. But at the same time, we want to try to reduce emissions and become more green. And so I think that he discusses the intricacies a bit about that and how for right now we we need it, whether we like it or not. And so we have to make it as good as we can while also looking for alternatives and nothing can solely sustain us. So it looks like gas and oil will be here for a while. So might as well make it 
as green and efficient as possible. So I thought those are interesting points. And yeah, he, at the very end, says he's very open to discussion. So you can message him on LinkedIn and talk more about his points of views. And he's always happy to dive further in with you. Yeah, we had a long discussion about it. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the It's Material World podcast. So for this week's special guest, I'm happy to introduce Justin Gauthier, U.S. business strategist at AES Drilling Fluids. So Justin has been involved in the oil and gas industry for nearly 20 years. He started in the industry as a maintenance technician before earning his diploma in petroleum engineering technology from the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology. Justin then went on to work in several drilling engineer roles before moving to sales and business intelligence. And during his time in this area, he earned his Master of Science in Global Energy Management from University of Colorado, Denver, which is a small part of what enables him to succeed in his current business strategy role. Along the way, Justin has worked on several podcasts of his own, including the Oil and Gas Onshore podcast, the Flowline podcast, and his current one, Wicked Energy, which I had the pleasure of joining a little while back. So that was that was a really fun episode. So Justin, thank you so much for coming on to the show. It, it's a pleasure having you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. It's uh, yeah, I've never heard someone explain my my kind of the history like you did. So I'm <laughs> I'm humbled. Doesn't sound like me, but I guess it is. And to not even just to be a regular guest, to be a special guest, uh, <laughs> I'm definitely special in many ways. So thank you. Well, yeah, let's jump right into it. I think we want to first dive in on your professional journey. It really is kind of a inspirational story of how you've worked your way up from a technician, picked up a few degrees, and you kept on climbing. Could you briefly describe first your inspiration for working in the oil and gas industry? And then second, how your goals have changed as you continue to gain new experiences and gain new degrees? It's a great question, right? It's like you always kind of want to hear the journey and the story. When I was 18, well, about to graduate high school, I'm originally from Canada, grew up in Canada on the West Coast, Vernon, British Columbia, which is like five hours from Vancouver. You know, in high school, there was two things I wanted in life, perks and paychecks. And so my cousin was selling wellheads for a company called FMC. And for those who aren't familiar with oil and gas, when you drill a well for oil or gas, you have what's called a wellhead. And so on the surface, the ground level, there's a thing called a wellhead. And it's a piece of metal equipment that stands on top of the well to control the flow of water, oil, and gas. So anyway, my cousin was selling that piece of equipment in Calgary, Alberta, which is like the heart of the Canadian oil field. And he always was talking about how he gets to go entertain clients and gets to go golfing and all these fancy trips. I'm like, man, I, yeah, get me a job. This sounds like, like I'm doing this in high school for no money. I could do when I graduate for lots of money, sign me up. And so he basically told me, well, you know, it took me 10 plus years to get in this role that I'm at. Pump your brakes, kid. You need to actually get your hands dirty and go work on a rig and see if you're cut out for this oil field stuff. And I was like, yeah, it sounds easy. So anyway, the inspiration was essentially seeing someone make a lot of money to party. And I was like, I'm not going back to school. Like, I just want to have a good time, make good money and enjoy life and, you know, experience all the finer things that the oil field has to offer. Anyway, so that's kind of what got started. So I graduated high school and then, 
he, he kind of pointed me in the direction of going and working on drilling rigs as a, as a rig hand. And so uh, that, that's kind of how it started was I was inspired by the lavish life, but then ultimately kind of <laughs> followed his path as working in the field, as they say, on a drilling rig in very remote locations for a few years before realizing I don't want to do that and I want to go back to school. But that's ultimately how how it started is just not really knowing what the hell I wanted to do. And I knew I was good at socializing. So I was like, why not get in the oil field? And But obviously, kind of had to pay my dues in the field, doing the labor, getting my hands dirty and understanding the fundamentals of what it takes to actually drill for oil and gas. You paid a lot of dues for sure. That's like <laughs> respect for, for doing the whole thing, you know, and like continue to, to climb the ranks. I'm curious how your investment in education, getting your degrees, uh, what was the rationale behind doing so? And do you anticipate continuing to do that? Or like, you know, you're in a, in a business strategy role. So my first thought was MBA potentially, but I wanted to get your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And, and honestly, I come from a family who doesn't have any post-secondary education. My dad barely grad. I don't think actually, no, he dropped out of school in, in grade seven. And then my mom, you know, she graduated high school from a small farm town in, in Canada. And then ultimately, yeah, never. I mean, she might have got a few certificates here and there. But I say all that to say is like when I was growing up, my parents owned their own business and they, they did very well. We were never held back by, you know, any limitations aside from you know, just, you know, typical things like not enough, you know, just we were set up well, we could do the things and I experienced life at a high degree of enjoyment growing up. So I never thought going to college or anything was necessary. And and, and then on top of that, the way the traditional school system is set up is not for people like me. I think all I wanted to do was socialize. All I wanted to do was like, have little side hustles in school, sell things to my friends, you know, like I always figured out a way to hack the system. And I didn't really care about what was being taught, I cared about the more the social aspect of school. Now, I guess, you know, you could argue that that's, you know, I learned a lot in, in the public school system, but like the in the traditional sense, like I don't remember a single thing from high school, but in saying that, I realized that there are certain things that can be applied that you learn in formal educating settings, like, you know, college and, and grad school. And so for me, it was important that I actually had some years of real life experience before realizing in order in order for me to reach my career goals i could either take the long path and work my way up in the field and and ultimately get to where i want to go but there's certain levels of credentials that you need to advance into certain roles and i wanted to be like on the high like an executive level business person for a large company and i knew i had to go back to school and actually i remember being on a rig and we were drilling a well for Petro Canada, which is one of the larger oil and gas companies in Canada. And I always tried to figure out like who was the top guy like in the room or in the you know in the area. And this gentleman was walking around with blue jeans, a shirt, and a white hard hat that was never dirty. And he was the boss. And I was like, so I just went up to him and I was like, how do I get your job? And he was like, he's like, you're like you're like the lowest guy on the totem pole. Like you've got a few years to go. And I said, well, how like what's the fastest way to get there? And I don't encourage shortcuts because shortcuts always lead to bad decisions. Okay, but I was like, there's got to be a, a faster path that I can still learn and and do a good job. And he's like, well, he's like, then you better just go back to school and and not worry about this rig life because if you ever want to get into the office downtown Calgary, you're gonna have to go back to school. And I was like, okay, well, so what do I do? And he said, well, do petroleum engineering at, at this this tech school. And so that's what comes like, okay, well. I don't want to go to school, but if that's going to get me to where I want to go, then I'll just bite the bullet and do it. And so, you know, again, this, it's a long answer to a short question, but 
there was things that I learned in school that really helped me with like some certain hard skills. Like, like this sounds funny, but like I learned how to be really good at Excel going to college, which has helped my career tremendously because I got good at running Excel and understanding how to build things on Excel that ultimately I could organize data and deliver data in a way that gave me a bit of a competitive advantage being in a technical role. So that was that was super helpful. And then, you know, grad school, there was there's a ton more on that piece. But the education piece, again, like some people are cut out for school, some are not. I had to work my ass off to get decent grades. Nothing came easy. But because I worked hard, again, it's just that mental toughness that you develop over time to overcome things that you know you're not good at. And I feel like there's an element of self-discipline that you learn in school as well. 100%. Yeah. So let's pivot because I want to discuss podcasts on, on this podcast. You mentioned that you, you've had experience with three podcasts. And I just wanted to hear your perspective on how those podcasts have helped with your kind of professional development or how has it helped within your career? And what is the impact that you're trying to make with your latest podcast, Wicked Energy? What was the goal with all of that? No, that's a good question. I'm going to answer the last one first because I think it's it's the most important. And you said, what was the purpose behind Wicked Energy? So we, some people like myself, and I guess for folks like yourself, we have a responsibility, especially in oil and gas, to educate people as the, the importance of why oil and gas is so important and how it impacts every single person's lives on a daily basis. And so for me, being in the position that I am, I've gained knowledge. And again, I don't claim to be an expert at anything. But I have a pretty good understanding of how it all works to where I feel like I should be sharing my expertise and using my network of, of professionals that have a ton of experience and who are highly educated and who have a bunch of experience that can also educate people with the ultimate goal of helping people learn to make better decisions about energy, whether that's voting, whether that's understanding that like why it's important to turn off the light if you're not using it especially right now i mean high like record level temperatures understanding how trying to be a little more energy efficient in your home could actually save lives like i mean that's an extreme case but i again i, I think i have a responsibility to educate people and use technology to do that at scale and there's and then into my innate sense of curiosity like, again, like I said, I don't claim to, like, I feel like I'm the, the dumbest guy in the room in most cases. And so I always try and punch way above my my league in terms of people that I come on, that come on the show so that I can learn from them, which ultimately I can take what I learned and my audience learns to then kind of spread the good word, if you will. So that's kind of what I, you know, Wicked Energy is about is educating through thought leadership, having constructive conversations around energy and what it's ultimately going to take to power the world because energy consumption and energy demand is only going to continue to increase, which is, I mean, anyone who's even somewhat educated or at least can just kind of take a step back and think like there's so much more that's going to be needed just from this day forward. Like the energy that the world consumes today will never be the same. It's only going to increase. And so how do we get there? Because energy poverty is a real thing. And, you know, again, kind of going down a rabbit hole that that was it's it's important to talk about these these issues because where does the money flow? Well, it needs to flow in ways that helps the world come out of energy poverty. So anyway, that that's one point. And then, you know, 
kind of answering another question, how has it helped my professional career? You know, again, it's for the folks out there who who are just getting started in their careers or maybe still in college or who, you know, for really but anybody, networking is the most critical thing I think anyone can do in your career. You can only rely on your hard skills for so long before it be, they become commoditized. The rate of that happening is becoming faster and faster because of technology. So jobs don't necessarily come and go. They just transform. You know, ultimately, technology is going to take jobs. But it's also going to create jobs. But I say all that to say is like throughout your career, you're going to be working with people that either put in a good word, either start companies. Because the reality is there's not that many good, talented people who who have lots of good skill sets. Some folks are good at one thing. Some folks are good at others. But there's very few who kind of have the full package. So if you're one that like, you know, your strengths and you've worked with someone, you develop a strategic relationship with someone and not necessarily in a transactional way, but like, you know, we all form relationships. And the reality is, is we only <laughs> mathematically, we can't build good relationships with everyone we come across, but to have the, to have a level of intuitiveness to know like, okay, this person I really should keep in touch with because they're going places. And, and I want to make sure that I'm part of their circle that to create opportunity. And so I'll say all that in like one sentence is the podcast has increased the surface area for opportunity to land on. That's basically the, the way I would sum it up. Um, I think there was another question regarding podcasting, but I forget. I think you really answered it. I think the only other element was just kind of like, what are your goals now moving forward with with the Wicked Energy podcast? Yeah, that's, that's a good question to just... <laughs> educate and, and inform and entertain at scale. If you know, the goal is to just get it in front of as many people as possible and, and have some of the best minds in the energy industry come on the podcast so we can have good conversations, but fun, lighthearted conversations to where people are like, wow, I need to start following this person because they're putting out some very valuable information and I want to learn something. And so it's just to have the, have good conversations with the best people in the world and in energy. Maybe one last question on your journey is just that, so you worked on three podcasts, you've gotten multiple degrees, but it seems like since the very beginning, you've been very singularly focused on what you want. You knew your goal when you were in high school almost. I guess maybe for people who are starting to transition and have similar goals of like knowing what they do, how would you tell them when to move on being like, okay, I've done as much as I can in this role. Let's try to push me to something else, like going back to school or starting a new podcast to push me to that next level to get to my goal. I would say self-awareness, <laughs> knowing knowing yourself, learning about yourself and what drives you and what brings happiness. At the end of the day, chase happiness, not money. And glean with your, go with your gut. Your gut will always lead you in the right direction. Try not to basically plug your ears and only listen to the people who have your best interest. I think that's so important and, and surround yourself with good people who are extremely growth minded. If you come up with an idea and someone sort of verbally undresses you in some in front of people, you know, get rid of that person. And if it's your mom, well, <laughs> you start start distancing yourself from your mom. And again, you're you're gonna be faced with tougher and tougher decisions as you move along in life. But at the end of the day, is like you just have to close your eyes and be like, is this a hell yeah or a hell no? And if it's a hell yeah, your gut's telling you, like, I don't know what's on the other side of this. But it's something's telling me to go there and try it or do it. And the younger you are, exploit risk and don't minimize it. Like take as much human possible risk as you can handle because that's where you're going to learn and that's where you're going to grow the most. Most people, you know, again, they feel like, okay, graduate high school, get a degree, get a job. And then you know, I got to be at this sort of, sort of place in life by the time I'm 30. 
it doesn't matter. That was built on the fundamental thought that you were only going to live till you were 70. Now with modern science, you're going to in modern medicine, you might live till you're 120. So take the first 10 or 15 years out of high school and just taste everything and exploit as much possible risk as you can. Because the last thing you want to do in life is look back and be like, fuck, I should have done that. I should have taken the risk. Because in the grand scheme of things, you'll never know the alternative. So every decision you make is the right decision because you'll never know what the alternative was to begin with. So maybe maybe you decided to do something and it didn't turn out great. And you know, I'm not going to be here sick cliche and be like, oh, well, every every loss is an opportunity to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the reality is, is if you decide to do something and, and you go do it, well, the alternative might've been you stayed at home and you walked outside and broke your leg and cracked your head open on your steps and then you died or you got hit by a bus. Like you really don't know what the alternative is. So it's like every decision you make is the right decision. So again, it, it was kind of a long answer, but, and again, I'm assuming your audience is, is fairly young. Like do shit that scares you and do things that you'll never do if you have a family and kids and people that are relying on you for their lives. Because if you don't have any dependents right now, like you'll be able to survive anything. And so just try as much stuff as you possibly can and it'll all work out. I love that. There's like really nothing I, I would add to that. I wanted to emphasize those points of like growth happens out of your comfort zone, right? And then there's also like a regret minimization framework as well of just when you're looking back at your life, you know, how can you make decisions where you feel like you'll minimize that regret as much as possible? Yeah. And the one thing I'll say is, is like when you're younger, you, you might like, oh, I regret like drinking that much last night and stuff like that. Like that's a good regret, <laughs> but taking regret in, in terms of like opportunity. I mean, for me, sometimes I look at it, it's like, like the pain of doing something and failing will never exceed the pain of not trying in the first place. Because if you, again, as you look back when you're elderly and there's all these things that you passed up because you'll never be able to get those again it'll just eat at you. But if you look back and be like, well, I tried that and it got landed on my face. And then, oh, that was cool because look what happened after that. Like, I don't know anyone who's done something where it's a complete disaster that didn't come out of it on the other end, stronger, more intelligent, wiser, more skills, right? And it comes down to fear setting too, which is a whole nother topic. You know, if like the worst case scenario of the worst case scenario, unless you're putting your life at risk because you're jumping out of an airplane or something, then, then that's different. But the reality is, is like, it's not really going to be that bad. And you almost kind of have to play through it in your head. Like, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? Okay, you lose a little money. Okay, what then? Okay, well, then I have to move back in with my parents. Okay, so what? Oh, well, oh, but my friends will judge me. Well, then get rid of your friends. <laughs> like, who cares? That's something that I constantly think about. So I'm glad you brought it up on, on the podcast. I wanted to now kind of get more into the oil and gas industry. And later on, we can get back into just general life advice, which is always a favorite topic of mine. But from the oil and gas side, I wanted to have you kind of just summarize from your experiences, the processes and procedures in place that are used in, in drilling, like in the oil and gas industry. And what defines that? Like, what are the differences when we say oil versus gas? Yeah, no problem. I'll try and keep it as sort of conceptually basic as I can. Because again, I, I want to make sure your audience isn't, doesn't get lost at this point. So I'll, I'll kind of go through the, the process. So you have folks that work in geology. So geologists go out and they figure out where to drill for oil. Well, then once you've identified these areas, you set up a big machine called the drilling rig. You set it up on the ground and ultimately it drills down. It's a bunch of pipes 
that get stacked on top of each other. They drill down. And then once you get to what's called the reservoir, so underground, think of it as a big sponge. There's a big sponge that carries, you know, millions and millions and millions of barrels of oil or gas and water. So ultimately a reservoir, again, the sponge that you're drilling through to, or that you drill into to get oil and gas, there's always going to be different elements. And so think oil, water, and gas. So whenever you drill for something, that's ultimately what you're getting to. Ideally, you want oil and gas. Both are different molecules and made up of different things. But again, oil is that black liquid tarry stuff, and then gas is a gas. And once you bring your drilling rig onto the ground and then you drill down, you might drill 10, 15, 20, 25,000 feet into the earth. And then once your drilling is done, you put casing in the hole. So think of it as like a metal straw. Think of if you're on a beach, right? And you're trying to like dig to China. I don't know if you guys ever did that. Like your parents like, keep digging, you're going to dig to China. (laughs) I never got to China, but uh, I felt like I got close. What's going to happen when you keep digging is, is it kind of wants to fall in on itself, right? If you're digging a hole in the the sand, well, it's the same thing with when you're drilling is if you drill and, you know, there's a lot of pressure and down hole. So what's going to happen is if you have a a void space in the ground when you're drilling, and and when I say drilling, it's typically you're drilling like 12 and a a quarter, so 12 inches, and then you might narrow that down to eight and a half inches in diameter. And then the final stage of a well typically is like around six and a half, six and three quarter inches um, in diameter. So not very big. And then you'll put the metal straw down there to keep the hole from falling in. That's important, right? Because if the hole falls in, well, then all the oil and the gas that's coming out of the ground is going to not be able to come out. So then it's a big problem. So ultimately you drill down there. And then once you get that kind of, once you have the well in place, how are you going to get the oil and gas out? Well, and now, and nowadays, I'm sure if people have ever looked at or if heard as, as they call hydraulic fracturing. So the oil and the gas is caught up in all these in this rock that's very porous but it's not permeable meaning it's got a lot of the sponge has a lot of holes but the sponge the holes in the sponge are not connected so if you've got all these little bubbles of oil and gas sitting intricate that that aren't connected they're not going to want to freely flow up the straw onto the pipelines so you have to fracture them so what that means is they go in afterwards and they put tools down hole in the, in the subsurface where the sponge is and they spend essentially pump like a lot of fluid, mainly water, and then, you know, sand and polymers to essentially fracture all the rock. And then all those, the sponge basically becomes connected. So then the oil and the gas and the water, which comes with that, can flow freely up the straw into pipelines, which then go to separators to separate the oil and the gas and the water. And then they take the oil and the gas and they bring it to refineries and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the life cycles. You you find the sponge with the oil and the gas, you drill into the sponge, you fracture the sponge. The sponges can then free flow liquids and gas up the straw. And then that gets shipped to other parts in like different, that's called, that would be going downstream. Upstream is the drilling and the extraction. And then downstream where the, all the oil and gas goes to like, they look like metal worlds with like stacks and pipes and all these things. That's essentially taking the raw hydrocarbon and the fossils fuel, I guess, then, and separating it to then, you know, it can get separated into gasoline. It gets separated into like all these different molecules that get then used in everyday life. Hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, no, that was really great. 
I'm curious to know your thoughts on the general public's feelings towards the oil and gas industry. I know you're describing basically fracking is somewhat controversial in the past year. So how do you feel that there's a stigma against this industry? And what would you say about that? No, that's, I mean, that's something that ha- we've faced for a long time. It's unfortunate. However, I think we've done it to ourselves. We've always been the ones to say, ha, I told you so. You need us. So I'll back up. When oil and gas got started, it was done by a bunch of wealthy folks who were like very capitalistic and money hungry. But their intent was good. It was like it was the free market. They figured out a way to make a lot of money on this material that the world wanted. So the demand is there. Let's supply it and make a shit ton of money while we do that. Well, generally speaking, and again, people don't like people who just make a ton of money and who kind of like turn their backs on other people. And not to say that's what happened, but it, the perception was like, here, well, these oil people are just making all this money and what are they doing? And then over time, it was like, oh, well, climate change. Well, what's causing climate change? Oh, CO2 and, and all these greenhouse gases. Well, where is that coming from? It's the oil companies. Like they're creating all these all these gases and and, and what's happening? And and then like, shame on them. They're making all this money, but yet they don't care about anything except for like making money and they don't care about the environment. And so it's like, oh, and so that's kind of been, again, the perception that oil companies, they make a lot of money and they don't care about the environment and it's death and destruction. And then of course, you know, we have Macondo, which was that big BP blow. The oil and gas industry had a, had a failure, which we fully admit that caused a lot of issues in the Gulf of Mexico. And so then it was like, ah, see, you're, you're making all this money, you're polluting the earth. And then you had this big issue offshore People passed away and rest in peace to those and all this oil is in the, in the water and all the birds are dying and, and and all the birds are getting stuck in the oil and and then this and that. And, and then it's like, oh, my goodness. OK, well, we got to stop this. Like they're polluting the earth. They're making too much money. And and then, and then everyone like the world, the ice caps are melting and it's because of the oil and gas companies. But meanwhile, everyone is enjoying the world we live in that we can we have air conditioning. We have heat. We can drive places, we have clothes, we have cell phones. So it's like there's a massive disconnect with like people typically who complain the most still use a lot of the very things that are required in life that are brought to you by, guess who? The petrochemical space. Petrochemicals come from the ground. They're the backbone of almost every material we use. So to answer your question, a narrative has been built. And even if you look back at like just movies and kids stories, anytime an oilman is represented in some plot, there's greed, there's like, he's wearing a cowboy hat and he's mean to everybody (laughs) or like, you know what I mean? And there's just been this narrative that's been built around oil and gas folks. Why? I'm sure someone could like better explain it than I could, but I'll give you firsthand experience is I went from Calgary to Pennsylvania in 2010. And what happened in 2010 is something that is known as the start of the shale revolution. Oil and gas companies, mainly one person realized, and his name is Aubrey McClendon. He was the CEO of Chesapeake Energy. They're one of the biggest natural gas companies uh, in the US, or natural gas exploration companies. And he realized that if you went into the rock and drilled horizontally and then fractured it, you could extract a ton more oil and gas. Well, what that did is it started the shale revolution and all the plays in the U.S., all the like big reservoirs and all the big 
sponges, if you will, finally got extracted and in a way that with technology, you could extract way more. And so what that did was that helped the U.S. become a net importer of oil and gas to a net exporter. And that's extremely important. So if anyone out there who's interested, Google Energy or BARD or ChatGPT, whatever you use nowadays, type in energy security. And then that'll give you an idea as to why it's important for us as a country to leverage our own resources instead of having to depend on other parts of the world. Anyway, saying all that. So in 2010, the shale revolution starts in Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia. It became like one of the biggest gas producing areas of the U.S. Well, I moved there. And so at the time, Pennsylvania and their economy up there wasn't doing very good. I mean, it was kind of the steel, the industrial age. It's kind of had passed up. And so Pittsburgh was more like tech and health and everything else and healthcare, I think. Well, I went there and it was like, oh, like, you don't sound like you're from here. Like, oh, no, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm in oil and gas. And right away, they're like, you're in oil and gas. You're like, you can't be around here. Like, you're taking our jobs. You're ruining the environment. And I was like, okay. I'm like, so how so? And they're like, well, you're fracking these wells and are, are, you're polluting the water. And I'm like, well, how does that happen? They're like, well, you're pumping all these chemicals into the ground and then it's going into our water. I was like, okay, so like how? Because from my understanding, and I work in the industry, like we're doing this like 10 or 12,000 feet below surface. And we actually like have isolated where your water comes from underground. Like we've actually isolated that to make sure the chemicals don't get to that. And Oh, the movie you watched on YouTube talking about how they're lighting their water that's coming out of the tap and it's chemicals. That's actually, that happened like 10 or 15 years ago too. And so like, I'm confused. Oh, and you're, wait, you're, you own a haircut spot and I don't see anyone in here except for me. So I'm spending money at your establishment, helping you generate revenue for your small business. And uh, we're not here because I don't want to live here forever. I want to help create an opportunity for someone else to come and I can educate them to which then your friend who lives down the road, who's unemployed, maybe could come work and they could take advantage of the opportunity. And, oh, okay. The light bulb finally went off. It's like, oh, you're here to create jobs, educate people. And then, oh, we're going to become like the tax advantages for producing a bunch of natural gas in our state that actually helps our economy. And, oh yeah, you're here and you're paying taxes. Oh, what does that do? That creates revenue for the state and the government. And so once you kind of like educated someone and people in the in a kind way, not just like, well, we're here to make money and then we're going to leave, it quickly sort of turned the sentiment around. But people just had, you know, they drew conclusions based off of headlines that were created by reporters that were trying to build a narrative around, well, you know, I don't get to reap the benefits of all this stuff that's happening. So shame on you. You're polluting the earth and you're polluting the water. And, and so it just becomes this like kind of tug of war, which is not conducive to growth at all. Right. So again, like I think the sentiment around oil and gas is the people who speak loudest about it haven't done enough research on their own to understand really what it's all about. And it was obvious too, when gasoline prices were through the roof, people blamed oil and gas companies for setting the prices too high. But what people don't realize is like Conoco's and Exxon's and that, they don't set the price for gasoline at the pump. And I'm not going to go into the economics, but if you even Googled that, you would learn like, oh, it's not necessarily those companies that are setting a price. It's called supply and demand. More demand, less supply, prices go up. It's like the fundamentals of economics, right? 
And so once you start applying these fundamental rules of economics, you can quickly find out that oil and gas companies don't set the supply or they, sorry, they don't set the demand. The, de- the demand is set by us, the consumer. So if the demand for a product or a service is there, someone's going to fill that demand with their supply. So if we wanted to stop these big, bad oil and gas companies from doing all this harmful work, let's stop consuming so much stuff. <laughs> because if not, the demand's going to keep rising. So then we're going to depend on the rest of the world to meet that supply. And what is, what is that? It's oil and gas. So that that's, again, like that's kind of, once you start understanding economics or dive into where is, why are we polluting the earth so much? It's because we consume too much shit. <laughs> I want to get into the discussion of those sustainable alternatives and in particular, what is the perception within the oil and gas industry as there, we've even interviewed a bunch of guests who are kind of pursuing those like, or developing those like bio-based polymers as replacements for petroleum-based products, you know? And so I wanted to get your thoughts on the innovation that is happening from with the the purpose of creating more sustainable alternatives. And yeah, just, just get your thoughts there. No, I, I think it's great. I love it. I mean, yeah. I, I think it it's not a game of us or them. It's a game of us and them and togetherness, we will provide energy to the world. So the ones who, I guess, speak loudly against renewable energy, and and sometimes they have an argument, just like anyone does. If you have enough data to support an argument, then you can create an argument, right? And so I say all that from from me and my position, the reality is, is oil and gas are finite resources. To sit here and say, we need to extract as much as humanly possible right now would like put the world in a, in a tizzy, it would be, you would, you would have cheap energy prices and cheap goods likely for the foreseeable future, but for the generation of my kids and, you know, if you, your future kids, if you decide to have them and then their kids that puts them in a bind. And that's when you, you, you hear about like sustainability, right? Like the goal for any oil and gas company. And again, I live in this world. I talk to a lot of executives. I talk to a lot of managers. I'll, their goal is to like produce the lowest amount that I can generate the greatest returns while trying to balance the market. Because if we were just allowed to just drill and extract as much as humanly possible, A, we don't have enough capital investment to do so, but we want to savor it as much as possible. So if, if we want oil and gas and the benefits that come with all of that for generations to come, we have to find a way to do it sustainably. And by that, it's meaning don't produce too much, produce enough to meet demand. But in the meantime, Let's come up with these alternatives. That way we can savor this beautiful thing that God or whoever you just choose to believe in has created for mankind. So that being said, I am all for renewable energy, alternative fuels, because all that's going to do is it's going to savor those hydrocarbons for use at a greater time or save them for when we really need them, i.e. war, i.e. Who knows what? Like, there's so much that it goes into, but I think it's important for folks to realize is it's it's going to take all of the above. We right now, I think, like sixty or seventy percent of the world has access to electricity, which is not enough. We need the entire planet to have access to electricity. How are we going to get there? It's not just going to be like oil and gas cannot solve all the world's problems. Solar and wind cannot solve all the world's problems. Nuclear. Mm debatable from a power generation perspective. I think nuclear has a a great future. Hydropower, any type of power, like any 
it's going to take all of it. So my answer is such that, and then we've done this, I think, extremely well. If you look at a lot of oil and gas companies, they're trying to lower their emissions as much as possible without jeopardizing their ability to produce oil and gas. And so we're doing our best and not because everyone's saying you have to, it's, it's the right thing to do. Most CEOs at oil and gas companies are aware that producing oil and gas, there's a carbon and greenhouse gas emissions associated with doing so, but so is mining for the materials that are used in solar panels. <laughs> everything produced, there's, there's a trade-off to everything, right? There's those negative externalities that come with producing anything. There's an energy input that's required to manufacture anything. And again, the more that we consume, the more manufacturing that needs to be done. And if you look at a lot of these rare earth elements that are required and that go into a lot of these products that we use on a daily basis, they come from parts of the world that don't think the same as we do in the US, i.e. China. <laughs> so it's again, that's another topic. But in saying all of that, I think it's important for folks to A, do their own research and have a sense of curiosity to dive a little deeper and look at things holistically. So from my perspective, it's extremely important. Like I would love nothing more than to have solar on my house that could generate enough electricity that could power my house. Then I had to have a Tesla power wall or a battery, or like one that's in my garage just to save the energy when I'm not needing it. Then I could plug in my electric vehicle. Like I actually think that's super cool. I know a lot of oil and gas folks who love their Tesla. You know what I mean? Like we're not like anti EV, but understanding the amount of work, energy, and material that goes into building this infrastructure and this technology and these tools and everything that we want requires mining. Everything comes from the earth at the end of the day. Like we don't just like make things out of thin air. Like they come from materials and elements of the earth. And we need to savor these elements. You know, if we just produce as many solar powers as we or solar panels as we needed to power the earth, we would run out and that would be bad. <laughs> so I say all that to say is like we need a little bit of everything to accomplish the goals that we have set for ourselves, which should be getting every single person in the world out of energy poverty. Because once they, they have access to electricity and they have access to clean water, then the health of the earth can improve. And we may we, there may be associated greenhouse gases that come along with that. Because when you look at like third world countries coming out of energy poverty, their energy demand goes up a lot. And the energy demand, i.e., A, that goes into GDP, because there's like a direct correlation with energy demand and GDP. And if for folks out there who love science, check out, there's a theory called the environmental Kuznick curve. And that is essentially, it's a, it's a hypothesis that is used to describe when like countries or large like continents or whatever, once their level of care for the environment is extremely low when they're trying to get to a point of, being like first world. And then once they get there, then they realize, oh my goodness, now we need to go the other way. So then their actual, their emissions go down. And so that's the US has experienced that as like, as we're coming out of the industrial revolution, we're emitting, emitting, emitting. Once we got to a point, I was like, aha, wait, we love our lifestyle now because we can enjoy the finer things of life. But oh, now we need to start caring for the environment. So let's go the other way. So then you have all these smart people who got to experience all the finer things of life and then they have schools and they're educated and They've got one and water and fancy buildings and 
now they don't have to worry about like where their next meal is coming from because now they can just Uber eat something and all that brain power can now be used to solving the world's problems. Oh, and so if you look at the US, our actual car, our, our emissions intensity has gone down, I think since like 2004 or five. So we're actually emitting a lot less than we used to, but our energy demand's gone up. Why? Because we've become a lot more energy efficient. So if we can get everyone out of energy poverty, get everyone super smart and have be able to live in fancy houses and work out of nice buildings, then everyone can work on the world's problems. But right now, we've only tapped into a small percent of the global talent pool. Why? Because there's people who are trying to freaking figure out how to feed their kids on a dirt floor. That's the problem. <laughs> As a podcast geared specifically for MSC, maybe quickly you can just talk about what is our role in that problem statement you just provided? What on um, the maybe energy industry needs the most of these uh, like fundamental changes in the materials or ways that we look at the problem to be either a more efficient like you're saying or b more sustainable no that's that's a fantastic question and that's you know panitz asked that or, or mentioned that was going to be a question at the end of the day when you look at sort of the basics of oil and gas a lot of what happens is it's a lot of a lot of movement of the material oil gas and water goes through pipeline one of the big challenges is the you know materials that gets used for these pipelines because you have things like corrosion, you have things like wear, abrasion, which ultimately degrade the material that a lot of these fluids and gases flow through. So like the pipeline industry, major, major demand for good material science folks. And then that's just one side of it. You know, you look at, again, the mining side of it, material science and on the mining side is is important because like up in Canada, they do a lot of mining for oil and gas. You look at like, there's so much equipment that gets used. And, and because oil and gas extraction and production is so capital intensive is because the amount of equipment that's used. And the reason there's so much equipment that's used is because there's so much wear and tear on equipment, on moving parts, on just like, like, again, you look at, like I was talking about a drilling rig to drill. It's a basically an iron jungle and you're beating the living crap out of it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Like this equipment doesn't take time off and it's not very automated. And then, and we're somewhat slow to adopt technology to where we don't have predictive analysis to know when something's going to break. We beat the shit out of it until it breaks and then we have to replace it. So if there's a bunch of smart folks out there who understand material, who understand mechanics, who understand physics, chemistry, there's a massive, massive gap to fill because a lot of the folks that are good at that stuff are now exiting the industry. And because big, bad oil and gas has had a hard time attracting talent because everyone wants to go work at a lot of these technology companies and a lot of different companies, which again, I totally understand. Like I would want to go work for a Google or an Amazon or, you know, one of these like really kind of like socially accepted companies because <laughs> they're doing well in the tech, you know? And so again, it's like, oh, like, let's go here. The reality is because of that, now we're seeing a huge, like a, a drawback in, in our talent pool. So uh, tons of opportunities for folks in, that are that are younger that to, to get into something like that. And, and so to, again, to answer your question is like, whether it's the pipeline industry, whether it's even working for like, you know, on the refining side, because everything that comes out of the ground has to be refined to make products that can then be sold to the medical industry and to the cell phone companies and all these places, all these companies that manufacture goods. There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of moving chemicals and gases and everything else. So like literally 
anywhere in the value chain in oil and gas, there's physical parts. <laughs> and those physical parts are extremely expensive and everyone does as much as they possibly can to limit the degradation of these parts. Now, if someone was to reach out to me and get a little more, because again, I'm, I'm like brushing an extremely broad stroke, right? I'm not saying like this exact company and this exact part of oil and gas like needs people, like everywhere needs people. So again, like there's, I couldn't imagine how many jobs are needed to fill material science and just folks to be able to understand materials and how to limit the degradation of these materials that get used every single day. I really appreciate that answer because, you know, this is just one of the other industries that we're talking about where materials engineers can make an impact and having you on the show kind of presents like, oh, here are maybe some of the gaps in the current industry that MSCs can help fill. So I appreciate that input as well as just your entire perspective on all of this. And one thing I, I do want to mention is like everyone wants to make an impact, right? Like at the end of the day, like it's our core belief that like we want to make the world a better place. Providing energy to the world and being part of that ecosystem to me is extremely impactful. And so for folks out there who like, we need to, we need to get to net zero. We, we need to stop carbon emitting. And again, we do. Like we really need to do that. Why not make an impact in the world's biggest consumable product, which is oil and gas? You know what I mean? Like, I, like to me, I'm like, if you really want to make an impact, join the party and like help us figure out how to do this a lot safer, a lot cleaner and a lot better. Because the reality is that you look at the International Energy Agency, you look at all these agencies and you look at the demand for oil and gas, it's only going to keep rising. There's debate about the peak oil demand coming up in the next five to 10 years. But that goalpost has been moved every year further and further and further. So if you really want to make an impact, get into oil and gas and make an impact because the reality is it's not going anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. It's a, definitely a new perspective that is like you can enter it with the the goal of potentially making it more emission efficient, if you will, you know, and that's instead of just saying, OK, they're the bad guys, just immediately ignore it and not do anything about it. So it is definitely an interesting perspective for sure. Yeah. And, and again, we are not perfect, but I don't think anyone is. You know what I mean? Like every industry does things that undermines perhaps their core values, not because they intend to, but it's just the, the natural trade-off of industry and capitalistic markets. So again, excuse us for making a lot of money, but so did Apple during the pandemic. And you know what I mean? Like it's just, it happens. <laughs> You're in the business to create value for shareholders and shareholders want money. So on another note, we would just love to kind of wrap up this episode with going back to your kind of just life advice regarding striking a balance, specifically from the professional side. We would love to hear your advice to, you know, as you said, we have a younger audience of students and early career professionals. How do you strike a balance between kind of acquiring specialized expertise, specifically maybe in the oil and gas industry you can talk to, while also cultivating a broader skill set that allows for that versatility and adapt like adaptability, you know, because this industry seems to be constantly evolving and there's a lot of moving parts. I would say it's taken years, honestly. Like I, I feel like now in my career, I, I get up and I, I get to do things. I don't get up and I don't have to do things, but the balance now is is a lot better than it was. I ate dirt for years. Like not literally, you know what I mean? But like 
I sacrificed a lot. And so I think when you look at your life, you can't think of it on a micro scale. You can't think like, is mine like, is today balanced? Like, am I going to have four hours for family? Am I going to have four hours for work? Am I going to have four hours to work out? You know what I mean? Like you can't. So I say all that to say is when you look at things in the macro, are you fairly balanced? Have you, have you given enough time over the last six months to commit to like meaningful relationships? Have you given time for your health? Have you given? So my answer is such that you work hard, you sacrifice in the early years to be able to have somewhat of a balance. My balance, some days I, I have no balance. Some days it's all work, like nothing. And then some days it's like mostly family and some work. And then some days is none of that. And so if you look at it in the micro and then you judge yourself and you are hard on yourself, it's miserable. But striking a balance happens in the macro. When I'm 80 and 90 years old, will I look back and say, I gave enough time to my family. I gave enough time to my work. I gave enough time for my self-care. And hopefully I can say, yeah, there was years where like something was more important than others. And then there was years where I committed myself fully and I put that stuff in the on the, sort of on the back burner. So I think it's like, A, don't be too hard on yourself lead with your gut, lead with kindness and like, let your heart do the talking. You know what I mean? And don't let the judgment of others dictate your decisions. That's a big one because everyone else sucks too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nobody's perfect. (laughs) And there's even an aspect of just being mindful, like without self-judgment too, you know, just being just kind of aware of, of how you're feeling, how their circumstances make you feel. And then just kind of acting accordingly without that self-judgment as well. Yeah. No. And then people are like, well, how do you, you know, how do you get confident and how do you do this and that? Because I don't care what others think of me because every day I try and do the right thing. You know what I mean? And it's, it's like, I, I go to bed at night so happy and without any stress is because I know every day I work hard and I do the right thing. I don't take shortcuts. I try and make the best decisions I can, but I don't really care what anyone thinks of me. You know, like too many people care what other people think. And that I think is a big problem. Well, First of all, just thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It was really, really interesting to hear your perspective and addressing the stigma around the oil and gas industry. So thank you again. And yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you guys. No, and, and for the listeners out there, look, I, hopefully you're, you're not going to tune out now to, to the podcast, but I, but I just, I really encourage you do a little Googling. Honestly, Bard and ChatGPT, like if you ask questions, like they do a fairly good job. I, I use them a lot more than Google now. But yeah, but but the thing, the point I'm making is like if you want quick access to like somewhat decent good information, some of it's biased, but like just dig around. Or if you have any questions, hit me up on LinkedIn. That's where I spend most of my time. I try and provide a lot of good content out there. So if anyone out there is or even wants to like argue some of the points I made, I think that's good. Debate, constructive debate with good intent is actually super healthy. So if you completely disagree with something I said today, please reach out and let's talk about it. Or maybe we can come on a show and have a debate. I don't know. But I think that's good for society is to like have healthy debate. Not like the shit you see on CNN or Fox. Okay, that's not healthy debate. <laughs> but real good debate. I appreciate that you kind of invite that that discussion. I think that more of that type of discussion needs to needs to be had. One last thing I do want to say, I know you're probably burning up or I'm burning up time, but it's always important to consider what you don't know rather than thinking what you know is absolute truth. Just remember that. Awesome. So we'll put your LinkedIn profile in our show notes in the description below so people can reach out to you and and have that discussion. Excellent. I encourage it. Thank you so much. Thank you. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. 
But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, I've done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.